It's Wednesday, September the 29th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. While I can lay claim to that rather wordy job description, I'm not the only fellow who's in the podcast business these days. And if you don't believe me, go to our website and see for yourself. Our web address is hoover.org. When you go there, click on the Publications tab. Then look on the bottom left side. You'll see where it says Podcast. Click on that, and you'll find just a whole plethora of podcasts. It's all sorts of fascinating topics, really good stuff. You can subscribe to any or all of them. I also suggest that you sign up for our monthly pod blast, which delivers the best of our podcast to you each month. Hoover podcast, just one facet of ideas defining a free society. My guest today is Michael Hartney. Michael Hartney is a Hoover Institution National Fellow and an Assistant Professor of Political Science at Boston College, where his research focuses on subnational politics and policymaking, especially K-12 education policy and, more generally, the workings of U.S. political institutions. During his fellowship year at the Hoover Institution, Michael Hartney completed a book that examines the causes and consequences of teachers' unions, political power, in America education. And that's our topic for today, Look for the Union Label. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Bill. So first, a little primer. Uh, you know more about this than I do, but my understanding, there are two national teachers unions. There's the National Education Association, the American Federation of Teachers. Then there are state and local unions here in California. Example, there is the omnipotent uh, statewide California Teachers Association. Then there are local teachers unions, such as uh, United Teachers Los Angeles, who I bet you're going to be talking about at some point during this podcast. Uh, it wasn't too long ago, Michael, that people were talking about teachers unions being on the down slope. There was the Janus court case, there was the uh, Vergara court case, but you contend that unions got stronger during COVID. Why? Why would that be? Yeah, I mean, I think that COVID really revealed the fact that teachers unions hadn't lost nearly as much power as people thought they had. Um, of course, part of it is that the Janus decision came out in 2018, and there's going to be some inertia around the effects of uh, of that on teachers leaving the union. But so far, other than a few states, namely Wisconsin, there are a whole host of reasons why Wisconsin was different because of other things that Governor Scott Walker did to try and weaken teachers unions in that state. But most states did not experience a dramatic decline in teacher union membership. And, you know, part of that is you have senior teachers who've been union members for 20, 25 years. Um, they're used to paying for uh, their union dues. Uh, and also, uh, union teachers have felt under attack in recent years, um, particularly around a lot of the education reforms that they disagree with. And then here along comes COVID. And they expect their unions to stand up for them, to uh, defend their safety as they see it, and to make those issues paramount in decisions around reopening. So it really gave the teachers' unions a way to sort of rally their membership at a time. It couldn't have come better for them in some ways. Um, and so... I think the other thing that people forget is that at the end of the day, American education still retains a great degree of localism. Um, you know, in the last few decades, all of the attention around No Child Left Behind, around state policymakers becoming much more robust players, sort of got people to think that local school districts really lost uh, significant power. Mm -hmm. And that really obscured the fact that at the end of the day, Janice did absolutely, the, the Janice Supreme Court decision did absolutely nothing to change the underlying fact that in, you know, the school districts that bargain collectively with teachers unions, by law, school boards have to give teachers unions a seat at the table. Yeah. Uh, and that is they have to hammer out reopening agreements with that constituency. They don't have that same obligation to parents 
students or all sorts of other constituencies. And that monopoly sort of position at the policymaking table never went away. And that's really what I argue in my book is what gives them the basis of their power. It's not so, I mean, being able to collect fees from non-members is a nice perk, but right, at the right. end of the day, having that seat at the table is really what, what gives them power. Can you uh, explain Janus, the Janus case, just in a minute or two? Sure. So the Janus decision essentially held that any teacher who, even if they are represented by a union, mm -hmm. um, that is their contract is negotiated by a union, they get the salary raises, so on and so forth that the union negotiates. Any teacher who doesn't want to be a member of the union no longer has to pay what's called a fair share fee or an agency fee to financially support the union. And of course, the right. union's position was the teachers benefiting from the salary that we're negotiating. Uh, and so they should have to contribute something toward that. Um, uh, but the Supreme Court decided that because public sector unions are bargaining on matters of public concern, that that's a First Amendment violation to compel a teacher who doesn't agree with those uh, things the union is negotiating for uh, to have to be compelled to financially support the union. So it takes away some of the incentive for teachers to join their union. Okay, very good. Uh, do you agree or disagree teachers deserve to have unions? Uh, I think, yeah, I have no problem with teachers having unions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, let me put it this way, there's the legal question and the practical question. I think practically speaking, all employees, especially in larger organizations, need some vehicle in order for them to, to have voice in an organization. And I think right. it would actually not be good for management if they didn't have some mechanism for um, creating collective action for teachers to be able to, to, to give them feedback. Uh, but that is a separate question from giving special privileges to right. any one group um, to get a special seat at the table in ways that other groups aren't. Uh, and I think that's one of the big reasons we've seen with the COVID debates playing out that teachers unions are given that special seat at the table, whether it's the CDC in their guidelines about safety, you know, the fact that the unions have the ear of people in the CDC and, and representative from parents groups don't necessarily have that same policy entree, or it's in the local school district where there's guaranteed time uh, on the school board agenda to hear from union leadership, um, but parents sort of get their two minutes uh, to speak and then the board <laughs> summarily ignores them. So, Michael, when you talk about unions gaining clout during COVID, uh, is this just sort of circumstance and just uh, something landing in their lap? Or is this more of the Rahm Emanuel case of never let a crisis go to waste? I think part of it is the latter um, piece here that uh, and there's a great uh, quote, and I'd encourage listeners to go and read the entire uh, read the entire piece uh, in the Los Angeles magazine where the UTLA's uh, president um, of the local teachers union in Los Angeles made the point that getting schools reopened does have something to do with safety. And yes, the union is out there fighting um, yes. to try and make sure that reopenings are done as safely as possible for her membership. But she says in the article, look, education is political and there are broader issues at play. Well, inquiring minds want to know what are those broader issues then if they're not around the public health considerations of COVID, that seems to be a tacit admission that, uh, of a recognition that this is an opportunity uh, to negotiate and have some leverage over districts because they know that there's angst to get schools reopened. Yeah, you and I are on the same page this morning, my friend, because I was just about to ask you about this. So this is an article in Los Angeles Magazine that first appeared about a month ago. It's a profile of a woman named Cecily Myart-Cruz. She is the president of United Teachers Los Angeles. 
for those not familiar with uh, UTLA, it was created in 1970. It's the nation's second largest teachers union. Uh, I believe, Michael, about 33,000 teachers uh, employed by the Los Angeles Unified School District fall under its umbrella. Here is the quote that stands out. Let me read it to you. Quote, there is, this is what she said, quote, there is no such thing as learning loss. Our kids didn't lose anything during COVID, she meant. It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup. Hi, Michael, UTLA is famous for an agenda larger than school instruction. They want at various times, they want a Medicare for all. They wanted a millionaire tax. They want financial support for undocumented families. How did UTLA turn into this? Well, you know, you could ask. I mean, because this is, this is a union that's in the business of more than just the pursuit of education. They have just obviously a much larger agenda here. Yeah. You know, part of it is the same thing that plagues a lot of our national politics, that uh, only a self-selected group tend to get involved in the internal union politics. So if you look at, say, the percentage of teachers in Los Angeles who actually voted in the leadership elections, uh, uh, you know, it's not going to be right. a majority of teachers. And the same thing is true. You know, people have talked about this for years, that one of the reasons that a lot of the policies that uh, that local unions in large urban districts tend to promote or defend, particularly around the salary schedule for teachers, how teachers are paid, Mm -hmm. um, the policy positions they take oftentimes tend to align with the senior teachers uh, rather than, say, with starting teachers who might want to see a nice pay raise uh, right. for starting teachers, but not having all that money go to senior teachers. And again, the answer is like national politics, seniors vote in elections. Seniors are more, are more active in right. teacher unions elections. So it's really not necessarily representative of the median teacher on those on those larger issues that have less to do with education. But I do think it is still true uh, that on the more narrow issues around reopening, that the median teacher does want the union there fighting for the most, uh, one could say draconian, but you could also take it the other way and just say uh, sort of the most COVID zero or most safe approach, because that's what is in their best interest. Right. right. So for the, those of you curious, UTLA had a leadership vote in 2020, Michael, um, of the 33,000 teachers in the union, 5,300 actually cast a vote. So right. talking about, you know, 16%, one in six of the union turning out. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not necessarily representative. And and I think that um, I mean, I think when you, I'm thinking about the quote that you've just read, you know, to me, the biggest issue that got a lot of attention for obvious reasons. Um, but the real question when I heard it, I said, well, how do you know that they learned what an insurrection was? Because, uh, at the, of course, at the same time during covid, uh, the teachers unions in California and elsewhere have been lobbying to do away with any sorts of assessments to actually measure what students do and don't know um, or right. what maybe they've, they've forgotten or what they haven't learned. So it's kind of a funny quotation, but the serious thing is we have no idea what students learned or didn't learn this past year in a lot of places because it wasn't measured. And unfortunately the unions took the position of let's not measure in a lot of cases. Right. So there's a quote by Albert Shanker, Michael, which may or may not be true. It's been on the internet for about a million years. You're nodding your head because you know what it is. And the quote is, he supposedly said, quote, when school children start paying union dues, that's when I'll start representing the interests of school children. Albert Shanker, by the way, is the president of the United Federation of Teachers and American Federation of Teachers. He passed away in 1997. We don't know if that quote's true or not, but it's, it's embedded in the internet now, but it does represent a certain mentality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I think part of the problem here is that for too long, um, teachers unions have have not been willing to grapple with the simple fact that that their preferred vision of the world 
that uh, what teachers want is what students need. This is what you oftentimes hear folks like Randy Weingarten say. And that's certainly true on some issues. No one would deny that there aren't uh, many occasions where the interests of teachers and the interests of students overlap. But it would just, you know, based on pure chance, be impossible for on every issue what's in the material interest or the occupational interests of school employees to perfectly line up with what's in the uh, interests of students. And COVID has really displayed that here because, you know, maybe one could argue that uh, in teachers fighting for better school buildings, new HVAC facilities, that lines up and that's good for everything, for everyone. But on other issues where the teachers unions hold a threshold of let's not reopen, let's have fully distance learning and let's have that for everyone, which was largely the case last year in much of the country, that led to many students not being able to be in school and falling dramatically behind. There's good evidence in this ad, um, in Ohio, uh, where um, a good friend of mine, a political scientist, Vlad Kogan at Ohio State University, analyzed the learning loss that happened for students in Ohio and broke it down by whether districts had been in hybrid, remote-only learning or in-person and found really good evidence that the, that the growth losses in what students had learned occurred much more, much higher rates in districts where students were stuck in distance learning for the better part of the year. Mm -hmm. So Randy Weingartner is the head of the American Federation of Teachers. Michael, she said the following back in May, quote, teachers are tired, they are exhausted. We have to find a way to repair and nourish them as well as families in terms of attracting and retaining our teaching force. She's kind of playing a victim card there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of rhetoric around teachers leaving the profession, but I saw, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head right now where I saw it, but um, the other day I saw some evidence that, that there's a real disconnect in the rhetoric of people talking about, I'm going to quit the profession, I'm walking out the door, and actually how many teachers have turned over, turns out in reality, not that many have left the classroom. In fact, it's funny, you and I talked about this, I think, earlier on an email exchange a month or so ago, that where we've seen more turnover and transition is among superintendents. Some of the biggest urban districts around the country are now desperately trying to find someone to come in and lead their school district. Um, do I think teachers are frustrated and tired? Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I also think like almost all of us are um, in, some, in some sense. Um, the question is, have teachers been put in a position that is radically different than workers in the rest of the economy? And, you know, here, I think it's a bit of more of a mixed bag. I think Americans are very sympathetic toward their teachers. They they know they don't make exorbitant salaries. But I think Americans are also frustrated when they see, and I'll give you two examples. One, they saw that teachers were moved to the front of the line for vaccines uh, right. last spring. Uh, so you had healthy 25 and 30-year-old teachers who are at very low risk of having COVID complications. I mean, it happens, but statistically very safe. They were in line at the same time that seniors and other people with comorbidities uh, were just able to get their first shot. So that's fine. But then the problem was a lot of those same teachers were in districts where their union was continuing to push and push and push back reopening. And the question sort of emerged, well, why are we prioritizing teachers for vaccinations if we're not rapidly trying to reopen schools? And then the other thing, of course, is that you've seen this odd dynamic, and this will kind of bring us back to the to the Shanker quote here. Mm -hmm. And that that is you've had you've seen this this dynamic where teacher union leaders in large urban districts, not everywhere, but in many large urban districts, have not wanted to get behind vaccine mandates, right. despite the fact that they have held out vaccination and sort of COVID zero as the barometer for when we can reopen schools. And again, I don't think that jibes with sort of common sense. People are saying, why would you oppose a mandate? And the, the answer, by the way, is very simple. Um, 
teachers unions have to represent all of their members. And so even if only five, 10 or 15% don't want to get vaccinated, the union's job is to ensure that they don't lose their job and that they're not forced out because of that. So the union itself is in a bit of an awkward bind there. Yeah, I think what Weingartner is trying to do, she's trying to claim the moral high ground. And uh, we've had this debate in California for some time, Michael. A few years ago, a, a local lawmaker suggested that we do a special carve out and create housing for teachers. And then all hell broke loose, Michael, because quickly firefighters said, wait a second, what about us? Because here in Palo Alto, where I am, some firefighters have to commute here. They can't afford to live around here. Police started crying, you know, complaining about this. Government workers did and so forth. So now we kind of had this slippery slope of who really gets to the top of the pyramid. And I think one challenge challenge for the teachers discovered here during COVID is if people take a closer look at their profession, maybe don't pity them so much because uh, there's an interesting article in City Journal the other day, which talked about education in California, Michael, and it claims the following. It says the average K through 12 educator in California makes about $84,500 a year. That doesn't include unfunded pension liabilities, non-pension post-employment benefits like health insurance. Uh, you adjust that, uh, the average uh, total compensation runs closer to $127,000 a year year, Michael. And then you add in this full-time public school teachers work an average of a little under 1,500 hours a year. Uh, whereas if you work in the private sector, you work about 2,000 hours a year. And so not to disparage the uh, the job of being a teacher, I have teachers in my family. Actually, I give them credit for doing it. But I think they're trying to claim this moral high ground at a lot of time of people saying, well, wait a second, you're paid by the government. You're not, you know, your job hasn't been taken away. You, uh, in California, you can get teacher tenure after a couple of years. You've actually got it pretty good. So maybe you shouldn't be complaining so much. Well, I, the issue of teacher compensation is a very, uh, very much a political hot potato. Yes. Uh, you, you know, huge debates over whether teachers are underpaid, overpaid, you know, economists really get into the weeds here. Um, so I don't want to say anything that's been said a hundred times. So let me try to add a little um, nuance and insight to this. One thing is I think COVID reveals something that we often forget um, uh, about teacher compensation, which is that some of the compensation um, has to be considered a form of job security. Yes. Okay. So, um, you know, Terry Moe, a senior fellow at, at, at the Hoover Institution, did a really interesting survey about a decade or so ago. Uh, and one of the questions he asked teachers on the survey was, how would you feel about a 50% salary increase if you were to give up your, your tenure or your job security protections? Mm -hmm. And you had significant percentage of teachers, I think from memory, I think it was around 45%. So almost half of teachers said no. I would turn down a 50% salary increase in order to keep my tenure protections. Well, any economist worth their salt would tell you what that means is that that job security is a form of compensation to the teacher because they're turning down a raise um, for that. And so COVID is a great illustration of that because there were people throughout the country and other sectors of employment uh, where things are more volatile when the economy goes down that lost their jobs. And one of the benefits of being a teacher is that, especially if, if you've gotten over the tenure bar, is that you don't have to worry about that in the same way. And I think sometimes that's not in the conversation that, yes, right. you're not going to make Silicon Valley salaries, but you do have a sort of stability that, and you do have other benefits that are not kind of a part of the conversation oftentimes. 
Right. We uh, had a debate over teacher tenure here in California, Michael, back in 2005 as a special election. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor at the time, put a series of ballot measures uh, up for a vote. And these were just ways he was going after the, the establishment in Sacramento. One of them was Proposition 74, which would have changed tenure eligibility from two years to five years. And you know what CTA, the Teachers Association, did, Michael? They borrowed against their headquarters and they just spent a ton of money to kill that measure. In other words, they just they fought to the death, and that's kind of the way California works in terms of that. And I want to get to that a little later in the show. Let's talk about your book, which comes out in July. What is the title, and what is the gist of the book? The title of the book is How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions, and American Education. Mm-hmm. And the basic uh, question that I ask in the book is, where did teacher union power come from? Uh, and why has it been sustained for so long? And the answer that I give is that it comes from government itself. Uh, We tend to think of interest groups in American politics, whether uh, it's the NRA, the AARP, we think of interest groups as groups that arise spontaneously, organically, um, because individuals come together through collective action, sort of plead their case before government. But if you go back to the 1960s and the 1970s, the story for teachers unions is different. Uh, Prior to the 1960s, individual teachers, other than voting, Uh, said it was completely inappropriate to even have a conversation with their colleagues about who teachers should vote for in a school board election. Uh, Teachers were simply not political power players. They they didn't have any interest in politics. And I take up the question of how did that change? And I argue that it changed because when governments, when the specific here, when state governments enacted mandatory collective bargaining laws in the 1960s and 70s, What that did was it helped teachers solve their collective action problem, allow them to get organized and require by law that school district governments recognize and provide an apparatus for teachers to get organized. And by doing that, it basically tilted or shaped the direction that American education would go in for the next several decades Mm. because teachers unions then became the only group in the education space where they could get organized, right? The parents didn't have the same luxury. Education reform groups, you know, uh, don't have the same luxury. They have to rely on the traditional methods that interest groups go about solving collective action problems, getting members, getting financial support. They can't bank on government policies helping them do that. It's also in the 1960s, Michael, I believe the idea of striking during the school year is not considered good form. It was not considered cricket. Uh, whereas in Los Angeles, we, we forget before COVID, actually UTLA, they went out on strike right in the middle of the school year. I think they went out in January for, for a few days to, to the list of demands, which I mentioned earlier. I think a lot of things that just have to do with education, but they thought, why not do it in the middle of a school year? Because we'll get our point across. Yeah, you know, um, One of the things about trying to look at strikes and studies, it's frustrating because a lot of states will have laws that say strikes are illegal, but then you actually look at what happens and strikes happen. So I'm not necessarily so sure that legal metrics around that uh, are that useful because enforcement doesn't really happen. I think where the actions that unfortunately too few of my colleagues in political science have studied this over the years, Terry Moe, of course, is, is one major exception, and that is not looking enough at the political levers that teachers unions are able to pull on. So unlike, say, the United Auto Workers, union, which really doesn't have any role in choosing its management um, and also faces the external pressures in the private sector that if they're not competitive, their job might be shipped overseas. Teachers unions and other public sector unions just aren't like that. They benefit from the fact that they're the most active group in school board elections. So where you are in California, based on research that I've done, building on work that Terry Moe has done, 
I find that even today, even after the Janus decision, when we're in this time where people supposedly think that teachers unions are weak, it's still the case that three out of every four school board candidates that run with the union endorsement win their election. So if you still have that kind of clout in choosing the people who will set these COVID protocols in choosing the people who will decide about school reopenings, about critical race theory, about whatever it might be, unions are in the driver's seat there. So that, based on that, it seems to me that there's no reason to suspect that their power will wane, certainly at least in California, anytime soon. So let's say for the sake of argument that I am a teacher and I'm a conservative teacher. And maybe I'm not overtly conservative. I'm not trying to indoctrinate my kids, but I have conservative thoughts. Let's say I go to the teacher's lounge and I put on my uh, headphones and I listen to Ben Shapiro. Let's say, let's say I voted for Trump or I voted for Republican. I probably wouldn't tell my colleagues that, but I lean to the right. If I am in a teacher's union, what are my options? What can I do? Well, today you don't have to be a member anymore. Uh, right. If you want, um, you have the right because of Janice to resign your union membership. So you do not have to financially support the union at all. Okay. But we shouldn't act as if that doesn't come with any costs, depending on where you are in the country. One of the upshots is that you won't be able to participate in uh, elections for union leadership. You kind of have to forego your voice. Uh, any sort of selective benefits that union members get, you know, those uh, discounts for renting a car, or going to Disney World, you don't get those either. So there are some costs, um, but they're not the same costs that existed before Janice. I think in California before Janice, you would have had to pay somewhere around 70 to 80% of what full union dues are. And this is a ballpark, but in California, it's definitely um, for the CTA over $1,000 for your for your national, your state and your local dues. So this is not chump change. I oftentimes joke, I, I think it would be funny to go back in time and just think about if a teacher didn't pay that thousand dollars in union dues for 30 years and put it in an index fund, uh, what would it be? And given the high, big rise up in the stock market today, right? So, right. you know, um, today is a very different uh, scenario than it used to be. So for, for teachers who feel that the union doesn't represent them, um, I do want to add something though. And that is, I think one of the reasons that teachers unions also retain their power is that even that conservative teacher, even that Republican teacher, um, when it comes to bread and butter issues around their salary and their benefits, they might, might not think like a Republican uh, on unionism as an idiot, like about unionism writ large. And they might be thinking more about, I need some vehicle, I need some voice uh, to, and, and the union's the only one in town. And that's another thing that I take up in the book that's worth mentioning that makes American labor law a little bit different. Here in the United States, we have a labor law system that relies on exclusive representation. And what that means is that only a single union is empowered to represent all of the teachers in a school district. So, you know, there's not, it's, if your district's teachers 30 years ago elected uh, in a, uh, an affiliate from the National Education Association to represent you, that's the only wagon that you can hitch your ride to if you want some sort of employee voice. There's, there's no one else coming along that's going to get a seat at the school board. And that's sort of one of the oddities of American labor law, for better or worse. Let's talk about the uh, dichotomy between public schools and private schools, which has really been exposed during COVID. I, I know you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, absolutely. I've been doing research right now in California, um, certainly uh, looking at um, the, the propensity with which private schools reopen for in-person learning compared to their public 
uh, school counterparts, you know, anecdotally um, sort of start at the 30,000 foot level. We have nice survey data um, from uh, out of Harvard University's program on education policy and governance, Paul Peterson's group out there, surveyed parents um, in fall of 2020 and again in the spring of 2021 uh, to get a sense of how parents who sent their kids to private schools, public schools, charter schools, felt the school year had gone. So we'll start at the 30,000 foot level. And at that level, what Peterson and his colleagues found was that private school parents were much less likely, first of all, they were more likely to report that their children learned in person. Mm -hmm. But second, they were much more likely to report that COVID mitigation policies that were in place uh, were less damaging to their students' academic, social, and emotional uh, and physical well-being and learning throughout the year. Um, uh, private school parents were like twice as as likely to say that things went better than traditional public school parents. Um, and also charter school parents um, said that their students did better um, than their traditional public school counterparts. So that's a sort of a 30,000 foot level look at things. In California though, some of the research I've been doing, I think is quite interesting. Um, I've done some analyses thanks to data that's reported by the state uh, on two things. One, the question of waivers. So um, the California listeners may remember back in the fall, uh, um, any county that was in the purple tier under COVID guidelines, the most severe tier, were not allowed to open schools. It couldn't be whether you were a public school or a private school, but the state made an exception. And the state's exception was that schools could apply for waivers right. uh, if they wanted to reopen. And so a couple of themes stand out about the public-private dichotomy. First off, uh, as a percentage of enrollment, private schools were much more robust in applying for these waivers. Um, but second of all, the things that predicted whether schools applied for a waiver or not, for public schools, public schools, um, whether they applied for a waiver and tried to reopen for kids was very much tethered to the partisan politics of the surrounding community. So districts that were big uh, Democratic districts, not likely to apply for waivers. Republican districts, much more likely to apply for waivers. But that wasn't true for private schools. The adult <laughs> politics of the community were much less predictive of whether private schools apply for waivers. They just tended to do it more across the board. And I think if you step back and you think about the lesson there, um, there's something really obvious that stands out, which is that, and this is an insight from 30 years ago in an important book, Politics, Markets, and America's Schools by Terry Moe. Uh, and, and Moe basically said, look, public schools and private schools occupy very different institutional settings. Public schools have to be responsive to a host of political entities. And so they will have to care about adult politics when they make decisions, whether to apply for a waiver or reopen, et cetera. But private schools are ensconced in only uh, an environment where they have to be sensitive to markets, to the consumers. And right. so if there are enough parents that want to send their kids to school in person and private schools need tuition dollars to be able to stay open, they have a much more robust incentive to open. And that's what we saw across the country last year. Privates did everything they could to reopen for in-person learning. Uh, and publics, it was a much more mixed bag that was tied to politics, not COVID infection rates. You might remember uh, California's governor, Gavin Newsom, who was just the subject of a recall election out here that he survived. 
he faces problem personally. He was at various points, and as politicians do, they try to relate to you on a personal basis. And so Newsom was saying, look, I have young kids, and I know how awful it is to be have kids at home and be a Zoom parent. In other words, kind of intimating that my kids are stuck at home, too. We're going through this. Well, it turns out, Michael, his kids go to a private school in Sacramento. They've been in school since last fall, so he's not feeling the same pain. And it didn't come up too much in the election, but I do, I'm do. i curious about where education is going in California. Maybe you want to reflect on this, too. Um, we had a... Um, uh, California do ballot measures every two to four years. And we had some interesting ones uh, during the last presidential election, one of which was going to revisit Proposition 13, which is the uh, cap on property taxes in California. It wanted to change the assessment of commercial property in California, Michael, uh, bring it into real time, bring a lot of revenue into the government. And they sold it as the best thing to do for public education in California. It's all about schools. It lost. It lost in a year, and Joe Biden won about 63% of the votes statewide. The idea this would just be caught in a tailwind behind it, but no, voters voted for Biden, but then they looked at this and they said no. Now it's Prop 13, Michael, and maybe voters get a little wigged out about thinking it's their house is going to get affected here. But my point would be that a very tried and true formula in California, which is just kind of cover yourself in the goodness of schools and kids, it failed this time. And I wonder if maybe one of the... Uh, effects of COVID here is given, you know, voters' frustrations with schools, the reopenings, the, the you know, the militancy of, of unions we've seen, maybe cloaking yourself in schools right now is not the best political strategy out there. Yeah. If you're a parent, don't you have to feel like it's an every man for himself sort of scenario right now in terms yeah. of getting your kid, getting your kid in, start with an education and then say social and emotional learning, some sort of athletic activity to do. This is not uh, sort of the public school experience that existed before COVID. Not that schools didn't have their problems. Of course they did. But I think that for the most part, parents could rely on the fact that they would be open. They'd have some place to send their kids, even Definitely. if just to occupy their time when parents were trying to go to work. Um, and now that that's changed, on the one hand, it's kind of cool to see innovation, learning pods and virtual learning opportunities and the private sector uh, um, tutoring programs, all these things can be exciting developments, but what they represent is sort of a further erosion of a common fabric that people experience, the social capital that their school districts provide to them, the interactions with other parents. And so, you know, is that if that is to erode further, if we don't get back to some normalcy, it wouldn't surprise me to see voters become more unpredictable in how they support school bond measures, whether they're in the whether they have an appetite uh, to support something like you mentioned, a revisiting of Prop 13 around commercial property, right. because maybe they're saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to uh, meet the needs of my family or my kids in this system, so I'm not really a part of the system anymore. It's very unclear, and I think. Uh, virtual learning presents another example um, uh, because historically it's been conservatives and those who are not necessarily enamored with the public school monopoly that have supported the idea of virtual learning. And it's ironically been teachers unions who don't want virtual academies and the sort of expansion, certainly virtual charter schools. But now the irony with COVID is it's sort of reversed where you see a lot of conservatives say, open the schools, let's get back to in-person learning. And it's been the unions defending a virtual experience. So a lot of this is the politics of positionality, I think. Now, speaking of school bonds, Michael, uh, in California's June primary in 2000, there was a $15 billion school bond on the ballot and it lost. 
uh, in a statewide vote, the first time a school bond has been defeated since 1994. Now, again, we're back to the Prop 13 problem, Michael, because this ballot number was, this initiative was actually Proposition 13. So again, maybe some people thought that, you know, I'm voting to change Prop 13, then look at it carefully. But again, something that would seem a slam dunk that was all about schools in California and law. So I just kind of wondered if if it's changed. And maybe it's changed in this regard, Michael, and that, you know, there is a very, you know, almost sacred relationship between teachers and kids in this country, a teacher is you, if you're a parent, you hand off your kid to a teacher. You're trusting that teacher to really, you know, shelter and mentor your kid during the school day. Teachers can be inspirational. You and I can probably look back to our early education and think about one or two teachers who really just did inspire us, move us along the way. But yet we have a situation now during COVID in Philadelphia, for example, a teachers union uh, forced the school district to reverse a decision to reopen schools last winter, but refused to report to their buildings over COVID-19 concerns. Chicago teachers threatened to go on strike in February after its members were ordered to go back to their schools as the pandemic went on. Um, it seems the bond has been broken, or at least there's not trust in the profession like there used to be. And I'm, I'd be very curious to see if polling actually shows that in the next year or not, if there's been a, a, an erosion in confidence here. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the polling hasn't really shown uh, immense dissatisfaction from parents. And right. I found that very interesting. Um, I think there's there. Let's put it this, there's probably a critical mass. I do think the data suggests, and I'm mainly referring here to be specific to the polling that's been done by Pepsi of parents. It's probably the best data that we have on this um, in the fall and in the spring of last year. Um, so I think some of it's kind of an exception, an acceptance of the malaise uh, of the public sector um, in some ways that you know the expectations weren't that high going in, perhaps. Um, and so you know it's not terribly surprising to a lot of families, and they just don't have a better option. Uh, you know, it's been true going back a long time that Americans give very high ratings comparatively to their local community schools, um, and but they give very low ratings to the nation's schools as a whole, sort of like the old uh, Fenno's paradox where you'll rate your member of Congress very high, but you don't like Congress as a whole. Right. I think some of that is just a product of if you're a frustrated parent and you can't afford to go to a, a parochial school, there's not another option. It doesn't feel very good to sit there and dunk on your local uh, public schools and talk bad about them and to think, you know, I've got my kid in this terrible situation. So I think that's part of the story here. But I do think what has changed is there is a critical mass. You see this in parent groups like Reopen California Schools, other parent groups across the country where maybe these folks have the time uh, to get invested and try and create an organization that's saying we're the 10%, the 15% or the 20% that feel left behind. And all it takes is a critical mass uh, of angry parents to potentially do something. The question I have, though, is whether we're simply too far out from the next set of school board elections. And of course, in California now, almost all school board elections take place in uh, even years. So right. we won't have a lot of school board elections, if any, uh, in 2021. I don't think we'll have any, actually. So um, it's one of those things where maybe, you know, if you're a school board member, you're hoping uh, I can keep the trains running on time and I'm not going to get recalled. And by 2022, people will forget about all of this. And, you know, for better or worse, there's probably some logic to that. Yeah, let's look at California for a second, Michael. Um, over the past uh, almost 30 years now, the state in various ways has, um, has uh, weighed in on measures that would change the educational status quo in terms of power. Um, vouchers, uh, Proposition 174 in 1993 was attempted, it would have created a voucher program, it got crushed. 
Uh, Proposition 38 came along in the year 2000. We've done vouchers as well. It got crushed. Uh, Pete Wilson, the governor of California, I worked for back in the 1990s. He championed a measure. I think it was Proposition 226, which would have uh, installed uh, so-called paycheck protection, meaning that if you were a union member, you, you could, you know, not let your dues go to political causes you don't believe in. Uh, I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast Prop 74, which was uh, teacher tenure and so forth. These all get beaten down one after the other, Michael. But now we look to 2022, and there is maybe going to be a measure on the ballot uh, sponsored by a guy named Tim Draper, uh, who's a rather interesting guy. He's a venture capitalist. He is a billionaire, and he is interested in union power. And his initiative, Michael, it would eliminate public employee unions in California altogether. Boom. Good luck. Boom. <laughs> I would say good luck to that. Yeah, you know, um, the ballot initiatives, let me step back for a second. Ballot initiatives are an interesting phenomenon in their own right, because what you will see if you look closely is that oftentimes over the years, policy ideas that have popularity, say 40, 50, low 50 percent support in the abstract in some public opinion survey, oftentimes we'll see them go down. They'll get torpedoed when you actually have the proposition. And I think that just goes to the built in sort of status quo uh, nature where it's very easy for opponents to frame something as bad, some change is bad, and human psychology is well, you know, it could be worse. We saw this in healthcare debates back in the early 90s with the Clinton healthcare plan. One of the ways it was defeated was, you know, getting people invested in the idea things are going to get much worse if we try this reform. And I think we see that a lot in times in education because support for school choice, depending on the polls that you look at, is high. Support for school choice among minority voters in particular is much higher than among their white counterparts. Black and Latino families largely support efforts to expand school choice. So you look at a state like California and you say, it's incredibly diverse, right? right? They've had all these problems with their schools. Why do we see polling support? And then it comes to the election and it tanks. And I think it just goes to show you how difficult it is if you're championing reform. It's not, I want to be really clear. It's not all just the power of money. Cause a lot, you said, you know, this example, you're going to have a lot of money coming in from the hedge fund world and from wealthy private sector world supporting reform. So it's not about money. It's about being able to mobilize boots on the ground of people to go to the polls and the people most motivated uh, oftentimes are the ones that have something to lose if the status quo changes. And so I think that's why you've seen these huge lopsided defeats for education reform on the ballot. Right. So Mr. Draper, who does have a lot of money at his, um, at his, at his, uh, at his side, he could spend a lot of money in an ad campaign, Michael, and he could raise some rather salient points. For example, here in California, 34% of fourth graders uh, uh, are proficient on math. Just one out of three are proficient in math. Uh, that's according to the uh, NAEP uh, test in 2019. That puts California 44th in the nation. 9% of black kids are proficient in eighth grade math. So there are a lot of tragedies here to talk about, but here's the challenge. I'm going to read you the exact language of his measure, Michael. Quote, no public employee shall have the right to form, join, or participate in the activities of a public employee labor organization for the purpose of representing said employees on matters of public employee relations. Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge there is that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a lawyer, but I think, um, well, first of all, let me talk about the politics. The politics yep. is if you're on the other side of this, this is a very easy campaign, I would say, to run against because yeah. you make it about you're taking away rights. Taking away my right to, 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 to rights. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, it, it's it's going down when you do that. But the second thing is, I wonder, I don't know much about the origins uh, of this proposal, but um, I could see making the argument about 
prohibiting. I, I'm surprised that it's not more about prohibiting school districts themselves right. uh, from recognizing and bargaining with a labor organization rather than couching it in the language of what employee, what groups employees can and cannot join, because I think that part will probably set a lot of people off and saying, because think about it this way, um, in the South, for example, in a lot of states, you don't have public sector bargaining between school districts and teachers, but teachers still belong to these organizations, right? Uh, right? For, in terms of being represented by them, they can lobby and do all the other things any other group can do. But the difference is they don't have that special privilege. Um, but yeah, that, that's going to be tough sledding if, if we can't even reform teacher tenure from two to five years. Yeah, I'd like to get Mr. Draper on a podcast at a future point to have him explain it. But I'm guessing, Michael, maybe there is both a philosophical origin to this, but one that's personal. And the philosophical side is maybe Tim Draper looks at California government and he sees a problem with unions in terms of influence over government. And I would just point you to our ridiculous pension obligations uh, as, a, as a consequence of this. But then secondly for him, Michael, it's personal. I mentioned uh, Proposition 38, which lost in 2000. Tim Draper was the backer of that measure. And right. he, he got blasted. I think he barely, I don't think he got 30% of the vote in that. So I think he knows firsthand what it is to take on the teachers unions and get crushed. And so I'm not saying this is payback or anything like that, but I think this just goes into part of the equation. But this does raise the question though, if you want to, if you want to, you know, lessen the influence of the political cloud of unions, what, what can you do, Michael? Well, the politics have to shift, right? And so what I mean by that is that far too often when we're talking about public sector unions and you're talking about government policy at the subnational level, you're talking about policymakers, elected officials making policies where the costs, the, the downsides or the costs that all of us pay are often kicked down the road and we don't see them. They're not very visible. They don't influence our lives. So when you, you bring up the issue of pensions, it's just too much for politicians to resist being able to enter in, into agreements about pension pickups or pension a generosity when they know that they're not going to be in the state legislature uh, when these matters have to be adjudicated down the road. Voters aren't very privy to them. They're in what political scientists call the sort of electoral blind spot. The average person isn't feeling them. So they're, they're kind of the exact opposite, if you will, of what you mentioned earlier with Prop 13. For better or worse, the Prop 13 sets off in people's ears something about my property taxes are going up. That shifts the dynamics and gives folks on the other side an opportunity to demonstrate some political clout because it's easy to rally people to your side when you say, hey, there are direct and immediate costs to these decisions. But it's just the case in the public sector that so much of the policymaking is in that electoral blind spot. And, and politicians think very myopically about this. They say like, I'm gonna deal with what's good for my, you know, my votes, my constituency now, and I'm not gonna have to worry about this later on. So I think until you can change the politics around that, I don't have the answer. Hopefully someone far smarter than me can figure that out, but you, can, you can't assume that voters are going to start caring about issues that aren't present in their everyday lives, or you can't, they don't feel that they make a difference. Now we could say they absolutely do. It affects the state government of California, but that's a harder and more complicated argument to make to people to explain why their quality of life is impacted by these seemingly arcane things that have to do with labor law and pensions and post-retiree healthcare benefits. People's eyes just glaze over when they hear that. Hey, let's wind down the podcast, Michael. It is uh, late September. The school year is underway across America. It's a fragile school year. I think we can agree in terms of questions of masking and vaccination and class instruction versus stay at home. Um, if, God forbid, we got hit by another strain and we had what happened last March where school years just get blown up, 
How do you expect unions to play differently? Do you do you think do you think unions look at this and they think they're pleased with what they did last year, or do you think they would uh, try different tactics? I think it's all about incentives, and unfortunately, there just aren't strong incentives in place, not just for unions, but for school boards, for public school district governments, and for unions to do everything they can to get schools opening. And God forbid, if we have to pivot back to online learning to make sure that it's it's as good as it can be. Um, let me close with, a, a, I guess, a little um, comparative example here. Many people know the story um, at, in the immediate days after 9-11. Of course, we just had the 9-11 uh, anniversary, the 20th anniversary recently. And many people know the story about the, um, and now of course it's gonna slip my mind, the name of the investment bank, but a prominent, small, not a big investment bank, not a Bear Stearns, but prominent investment bank on Wall Street that lost about 85% of its staff on 9-11. It's Cantor Fitzgerald, I think. Is that it? Yeah, okay. Um, uh, and there's a there was a great uh, 60 Minutes episode that was done on this where they zoomed in and they followed the leaders there in the days immediately following. And, you, and I really encourage people to go look it up and watch it because what really stood out to me was you saw one of their employees stand up and basically rally everyone and say, look, we don't have, this was back before you actually had digital, a lot of the digital technology. We, there was no Zoom, right? And it says, look, we're going to make trades today because right. that's what we have to do to survive. And there are families and people counting on us. And, you know, our colleagues tried to make trades last week and they couldn't, and we're going to do that for them today. Now, I'm not saying that's the same situation as COVID, but what I do take away from that is, my goodness, if we could have leadership in superintendent positions and principal positions that took on that same ethos, that same idea of we will do whatever it takes. Okay. We're not talking rocket science in a lot of places. We're talking about buying some benches. I mean, in California, for crying out loud, you're blessed with, in Southern California anyway, you're blessed with some of the best uh, weather in the country. Why is it that California and Hawaii? of the states in the union were among the lowest in terms of giving kids in-person learning last year when they simply could have held classes in many parts of the states outside. Yeah, this, it, is what was, this is what was disappointing, Michael. You take Southern California, where we're in the middle of a drought, by the way, it never rains here. You could have easily set up tents and just put kids outside and done it out there. And it, it's shocking, both in terms of just no one you know, daring to do this. But secondly, we're the land of innovation, for crying out loud. So you think the innovative thing would do it would be to think outside the box, but no, not allowed. Yeah. And this, you know, it all boils back to a simple thing. And that is, this was an insight from um, James Q. Wilson, very famous political scientist right. uh, who wrote the book Bureaucracy and tells the story about Donald Trump building the Woolman rink, the ice skating yes. rink in New York City. And the city had spent all this money and couldn't get it done. And and Wilson says, look, it's it, the story here is pretty simple. It's that government can't say yes. There's no one yes you have to get 20, 25 people to say yes. You have to get these committees to convene to buy the benches, to have classes outside. You've got to get buy-in from the union. And so unfortunately, those incentives, that bureaucracy is misaligned with the sort of thing that we saw in the aftermath of 9-11 with the traders just getting back to work. And that's why you know, the public school sector, I mean, if we, put, if we zoom back out to the 30,000 foot perspective here, that's why the public school sector, despite the fact that the COVID science was really clear that young kids were the least likely to be affected, not totally unaffected, but the least likely. And yet it was that sector, even after vaccines came in for teachers that experienced the most malaise. There's simply no other explanation for it other than the massive bureaucracy and the adult politics. 
Okay, Michael, the title of the book again, when it comes out and where can I get it? How Policies Make Interest Groups, Governments, Unions, and American Education, and it will be coming out with the University of Chicago Press in July. Looking forward to it. Michael, you take care. I hope things are going well for you back in Boston. Thanks a lot, Bill. Enjoyed it. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. If you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the broadcast. That is www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellowship to your inbox weekdays. Very easy to do that. Just go to that same publications tab I mentioned. In this case, it's uh, you'll just you'll find it on the top right hand side where it says um, uh, where it says daily report. Click on that and you'll subscribe to it. You get it five days a week. It's good stuff. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll keep doing our best to hit the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.